0: Greetings, mortals. Welcome to Fatal Fortunes. I'm Al. I'm Nathan. Join us for a deep dive into some of history's most fascinating characters who live dangerously beautiful lives and whose legacies haunt us today. Welcome back to another episode of Fatal Fortunes, guys. I've been having so much fun doing season two, because Nathan and I just get to sit here and bitch to each other before we start recording, and I find it so fun. Yes. How are you, Nathan?
1: I'm pretty all right. Uh, it's it's a it's a lovely Wednesday evening right now when we're recording this, and I'm I'm sipping on the last of my robot crush from my work. What about you? Are you drinking any any beverage, Al? How are you doing?
0: No, I was enjoying some water. I thought about grabbing Great. some kombucha, but I did not grab some kombucha.
1: I recently had a conversation with somebody about kombucha at work, and I still have not tried it. I got to, I like, we should, at in an episode, I will bring kombucha and finally have it on camera for the first time. Cause what, still, what flavor
0: are you going to do first?
1: I don't know. What what flavors are there? <laughs> I don't know. Okay,
0: I really liked um, Watermelon Wonder. All I think right. that the brand's called Synergy. I liked Watermelon Wonder. I was I afraid like to Watermelon try it favorites. for a really long time. Mm-hmm. And one of my girlfriends, like, there was this one class at Emerson where I got so sick and missed so many of these classes. And to not fail, I had to go to the mosque and, like, take one of their, like, Tuesday night classes. Oh, wow. And I went to so many that, like, I brought my grade from, like, a C to a B.
1: <laughs> That's turning it around. That's above average. You did it.
0: And especially because I lived a five-minute walk from the mosque, like had to walk past the mosque in Roxbury to get home. So to backtrack to it, easy peasy. Yeah. Convinced one of my Muslim friends from high school to meet me there. One of her girlfriends has watermelon wonder. I try it for the first time. So delicious. So amazing. I'm so excited. I pass it back to her. She immediately drops it and it goes into the gutter, all of it.
1: Damn. Yeah. That's rough. I hate when yeah, things go really like sad. that. It
0: was really sad. Oh, don't drink more than one a day.
1: That's what I've heard. I've heard it's very dangerous to drink multiple. Yeah.
0: Fries your brain. You can, like, work your way up to, like, one and a half. But don't do it. I remember (laughs) our friend Connor. Our friend Connor drank, like, three in one day and was like, I don't feel good.
1: (laughs) I wonder why. (laughs) Oh, man.
0: Yeah. But eventually, apparently, you can replace coffee. So let's start... Today's episode off with um this isn't a trigger warning, maybe it's just like a content advisory is what I'll call it, is you know slavery is basically this whole story, or at least it's interwoven into basically every single part of this story, and you know Nathan and I aren't historians. Slavery is hard to talk about. But here we stand because you know we think that Phyllis's story is super important as the first African and second woman to ever publish a book of poetry. We really wanted to talk about Phyllis because we went to school in Boston together. She walked the same streets that we once walked. She is a part of the Boston life, I think, that we all live in some ways, and I think that her story is a lot of part of our story, and without stories like hers, I don't think that Boston would be, as you know, renowned. I don't think Boston would be as renowned as the place of education equality freedom etc that it is around the world without narratives like hers so we thought that it would be important to talk about phyllis but we just wanted to give a content advisory that we're not anthropologists sociologists whatever those are we're two friends with a podcast like my history i know my history minor doesn't mean that like i'm the expert on this and i know that me being you know a tan person who descends from slaves also doesn't necessarily make me an expert on this. So here we go. What was happening in 1773? I wanted to kick it off with this one because the Jewish naturalization act allowed Jews to become British citizens, but in sweet, sweet usual fashion, it was repealed the next year. And I think that that's a, you know, just another little funny stoop in our long Jewish history and story of being exiled from places. I'm like, wow, great. Rights and then no rights. Thank you. Thank you. The British Museum was founded. I loved the British Museum when I went. I know that all that is just stolen, but, you know, it's cheaper to fly to London than it is to Cairo. They sent 21-year-old George Washington to try and prevent the French from invading Ohio, and I think about myself at 21, you couldn't get me to do, like, you couldn't get me to go to the corner store. So, I don't let alone like tell someone not to invade a state.
1: But or imagine a like trying to o- invade Ohio of all places. Like, come on, French. That's Easy
0: just... waste of time. Come on. I don't even vaguely know if Ohio was a thing yet. I think Ohio was only an idea then. I don't think it was a state.
1: Ohio still is just an idea.
0: Oh, this one's yours.
1: Oh, yeah, Ben Franklin got a medal for his curious experiments and observations with electricity. That bastard got lucky.
0: How old ben... was Benjamin Franklin that year? Ben?
1: Oh, I have no Benjamin. idea. He must have been like 20-something. Franklin. A strapping young man. Getting... Oh, no. No? Like 47. He's as... Oh, God, he's old. Gross.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, Benjamin Franklin went to my high school, and everyone always says he graduated Boston Latin. Oh, my God. It's like, no, he didn't. He literally went there for, like, two years until he couldn't afford the books and had to drop out.
1: Oh, damn.
0: So he's not he's one not of one. He's of
1: not us. even real.
0: Not really. The first steam engine arrives in the American colonies. Bad for the environment, great for transportation. You love to see it. A fire destroys the emperor's palace in Moscow. And then there was the birth of Vietnamese emperor Quang Trung. And he only reigned for four years, but he was one of the most successful commanders in Vietnam's history. Fun fact, especially because when you're doing research for, like, what happened in the years, the further you back you go, the less you can find about stuff from outside of Europe. I don't know if you've experienced that, Nathan, but... I
1: totally have. I mean, um, like, a lot of things in this story um, that we talk about, like, unfortunately, are lost to time. Especially, like... I think that uh, Europeans were ignoring uh, African people's histories, so a lot of them were forgotten, destroyed, um, yeah, intentionally erased.
0: Like for our Catherine of Aragon episode, I remember uh, the only thing that came up for fourteen eighty-five was Catherine of Aragon was born, Battle of Bosworth, big comet. Mhm. was <laughs> yeah. like oh, vibes, vibes. Right. Okay. Oh, okay. We don't nothing we don't know what happened this year, I guess. <laughs> but now I like almost want to like accept the challenge of doing like some something like semi mythical from like after the fall of the Romans, but before like Da Vinci.
1: Hm. Yeah, that'd be tough. It'd be tough. Definitely would have to get some books.
0: Definitely would have to read. Shit. Shit. Mm Did you you just say read? But no, I got a book for the next episode, actually. Nice. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. cool. I'm going to try and read for half an hour every day to try and take my mind off of law school, but -hmm. also, like, stay sharp. This is going to be one of our last episodes of the Georgian period for a while because, honestly, at this point, I cannot take it. We've done three episodes in a row about writers. We all made, we made these choices, but now I'm like, damn, we've been talking a lot about the Georgian period. I'm getting sick of it, but we will move past it. And we will say, and I think we've learned a lot, but we will say one more time, you know, a good introduction during the Georgian period. So Phyllis would have grown up in a very similar culture to Mary Wollstonecraft, although, of course, she was on a very different receiving end of it. This is during the American colony period in Boston before they ever filled the Shamit Peninsula which I didn't even know that they did until recently which is kind of embarrassing like I knew that we filled in some land and stuff and I know that's why Fenway exists I did not know how drastic it was I will put that in the show notes because there are very few pictures for Phyllis so we will put what Boston looked like before they filled it in and what kind of atmosphere she would have been living in Phyllis's story is definitely an exception to the norm when it comes to education and the treatment of enslaved people, but that she lived had a really big impact on the later abolitionist movement, even though her beginnings are that of relative privilege for an enslaved person. She still meets a tragic and impoverished end, and we lose a lot of her story just like that of so many other black people during this period, so duh, this is going to be a shorter episode than some of our other subjects. Phyllis was born sometime around 1753 in West Africa, maybe in Gambia or what would now be Senegal. She was kidnapped by a visiting trader who brought her to Boston at the beginning of 1761 on a slave ship called the Phyllis. She was bought by John Wheatley as a gift for his wife Susanna, and they named her after the ship that brought her to the colonies. A common custom at the time, if enslaved people were even given last names, was to take the surname of their master. I have personal experience with this. Um, My last name is Spruill, and although we in America have been free for almost 150 years, I still bear the last name of the North Carolina family that enslaved mine. Mary and Nathaniel Wheatley first spearheaded Phyllis's education. They were the children of the family, and they gave her an extraordinary education for women of any race at the time. So it's extraordinary for women to know how to read, write, compose, do Latin, Greek, but it's even more shocking that a slave would learn this because, you know, as we know, even knowing how to read and write sometimes as a slave could get you killed. But this was not the case for Phyllis Wheatley. By the time she was 12, she was proficient in Greek and Latin, and by 14, she was writing her own poetry. The Wheatleys believed her to be so good that they exempted Phyllis from household labor typically expected of an enslaved person, but they still used her talents as a party trick to entertain their other Boston Brahmin friends. Phyllis's first poem that she wrote was called To the University of Cambridge, Harvard, in New England, thus beginning several centuries of teenagers writing poetry about Harvard. Nathan, have you ever seen them doing it?
1: I don't think I have. Sometimes um,
0: I feel like I'm in Harvard Yard and I just see people writing about the school just while they're right
1: there. Wild to think about that it's so old. And like I know that's like it's, yeah. I was, I was talking yeah, to Alex. Yeah, Harvard was already like 120 it, it's, it's, it's years old. That's the whole thing, that it's just old. But, yeah. wow. Already yeah, when, um, 120. When Phyllis would have been 10.
0: 14 in 1767, Harvard had already been, what, almost 140 years old?
1: That's in, That's wild, yeah.
0: But I guess that kind of has nothing on, you know, Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Found it in like 10 something. Right. But still, still impressive, still kind of crazy. And also about this poem, I would have loved to have read this poem to you guys, but I can't find it anywhere. So we know that she wrote it. It did exist. She did set trends, but I cannot avail your ears of it today. And I'm sorry about that. With. Phyllis's first poem, this also starts the theme of Phyllis drawing from subjects other than her own life and circumstances. One poem that she had written to reflect her life and her experiences was on being brought from Africa to America, and I have it here, and I will read it for you. "'Twas mercy brought me from my pagan land, taught my benighted soul to understand that there's a God, that there's a Savior too, once I redemption neither sought nor knew." Some view our sable race with scornful eye. Their color is a diabolic dye. Remember, Christians, Negroes, black as Cain, may be refined and join the angelic train. And as we can see here, and I think reflects in modern criticism of her work, notably by Russell Riesling, who I will also include in the show notes at FatalFortunes.com, she doesn't write about the reality of her circumstances, or feel a deep, I would say, connection to her life as someone who is black and enslaved. I just think that her writings give ammunition to both sides. Both the abolitionists and, you know, the, I don't know, they're not called confederates. The regular Americans.
1: Yeah, the, the, colon, the colonists. Yeah. The colonial people of America. Because, yeah, if you look at the first line, it was like, Twas mercy brought me? But... Kidnapping doesn't seem like a merciful act in the slightest. Exactly. And we'll talk about this. We'll definitely talk about this more later in the episode of how people were not really happy with how, oh, well, she didn't write enough about the hardships of how awful slavery was. Um, And I think that, that, yeah, maybe is because of her upbringing. But uh, as I said, we'll get into that more.
0: Yeah, and her writings get used on both sides, you know, of the abolitionist way and the regular colonist way to promote Uncle Tom syndrome, which is for people who don't know. It is basically where an African-American person shrinks themselves to be acceptable to the mainstream white society to survive, and like with Phyllis, it's a technique to assimilate and deprive enslaved people of their African ancestry and heritage, because in a way I feel this poem rejects. You know, the culture that she grew up with. She calls it mercy, like you said. She says, she, like, talks about Protestantism in such a positive light. Without really... And, like, calls her own religion pagan. Like, she doesn't... Yeah. She doesn't stand up for it. Or at least maybe maybe she was kidnapped at such a young age that she can't really remember the practices. And that's why she see, sees the life that she lives now in such an idealized way, I see a lot of idealism in her work.
1: I mean, yeah, she was eight years old around then, so that is totally young enough to be indoctrinated into a new society and be totally brainwashed.
0: And for some abolitionists, Phyllis's work was seen as evidence that slaves could feel and think and have full emotions. Thomas Jefferson, hate this guy, he once wrote, Religion has indeed produced a Phyllis Wheatley, but it could not produce a poet. The compositions published under her name are below the dignity of criticism. Oh hate this guy.
1: Yeah, what a dickhead. He, doesn't, like, he wouldn't know poetry if it slapped him in his stupid, wrinkly old face. God. He
0: wouldn't know what it is if it, if it shot him. Like.
1: Is that how he died?
0: No. I don't know. He probably got to live a good, long life like assholes do.
1: (laughs) Yeah, truly. Like, who
0: are we kidding? 83 years old. Oh,
1: my God. That's awful. 83? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Only the good die young people.
1: Only the good.
0: Because this guy sucks. And remember, you can clearly see that his thoughts on enslaved people extend not only to Phyllis and his criticisms on her writing, but probably definitely extend to Sally Hemings, the mother of his six children and half-sister of his wife Martha, because of her blackness. So, all-around, terrible guy. I hate reading about him in Con Law. I say that when I start, like, a sentence in Con Law. I'll be like, okay, so I know that we read, like, something like that. Jefferson said about this thing, and Jackson said about this thing, and then Franklin Delano Roosevelt said about this thing, and then Scalia said about this thing, and I hate those four white guys. Oh
1: god, yeah. They're the I worst. I hate them, and
0: I have no respect Scalia, for them.
1: dear lord.
0: <laughs> but you know, maybe I can kind of see their point. Maybe I can step back and kind of see the through line to the point that's being made in general, but I hate these guys. So it takes me like four times of reading it to put my own shit aside.
1: That was always my problem with a lot of Ethics and philosophy was just like, I can't get behind this. I'm living in 2021 and Socrates hates women. Like, I can't. Aristotle, why are you like this? Like, please. Yeah. Please. Uh, please. Please. Yeah. Even
0: translated, I don't know what it says.
1: Right, exactly. Oh my God, it's so dense.
0: It's your turn to talk about London. Yay. Okay, yeah.
1: Okay, yeah. By the time Phyllis was 18, She had a collection of 28 poems, and she and Mrs. Wheatley started running ads in Boston newspapers. However, the colonists in the Americas did not fully support literature by an African, let alone an enslaved person, so they decided that London is the next best thing? Which doesn't make
0: sense. Yeah, personally, Those are the people that brought slavery over here. I I can't follow the
1: logic at all. Right. I can't follow the logic either. It's the other reason they decided to go apparently was for Phyllis's health. She had chronic asthma. So it's like, let's go to London town?
0: <laughs> that doesn't make any sense because doesn't make people leave London sense. when they have asthma.
1: Right. You go to Scotland, like in last episode. Like, I guess, but not no, London. No, but it's
0: true. It's true. If you're in the Western world and it is the Georgian period, if you have asthma, you're going to Scotland. Right. Or back so... To the baths. Like,
1: Nevertheless, she goes... We've done
0: this. We know this rodeo.
1: She's going in 1771, and she's accompanied by uh, the son, Nathaniel Wheatley. When they arrive, Phyllis has an audience where she reads some of her poetry. Notably, we have Benjamin Franklin, John Thornton, Sir Brooke Watson, soon to be mayor of London, and Baron George Littleton. While also in London... Phyllis became acquainted with Selena Hastings, who is the Countess of Huntingdon. And Hastings had seen her elegy for George Whitefield, an Anglican cleric and evangelist. This poem was a tribute to him, and it was published as a broadside and a pamphlet in Boston, Newport, and Philadelphia. This was something that Phyllis did a lot. She, like, wrote um, for people who had passed away, like, a commission kind of thing. And this reached national acclaim, so Hastings was already well aware of her talents by this point, and she was also interested because George Whitefield was, at one point, a chaplain for her. So Hastings gets in contact with Phyllis and puts her in connection with Archibald Bell, who is a bookseller. He's got a bookshop, and in all honesty, Hastings was super wealthy, so Phyllis probably got ripped off in this you know, deal that they made, um, because basically Hastings subsidized a collection of poems for Phyllis into her next book, poems on various subjects, religious and moral. And it's the first volume of poetry published by an African and second by a woman in modern times, and released in 1773, as she was recrossing back home um, over the Atlantic.
0: I also found it kind of crazy that she never actually met Selena. Yeah. In real life, like
1: she was just put in contact with this bookseller, and they worked it out. But yeah, that's also why it it, it feels, uh, a little off to me that, yeah, they never maybe met. It
0: shouldn't though because uh, she apparent Selena, mm. she patronized over, you know, thousands of artists in her lifetime and thousands of churches and schools and stuff, and she spent over a £100,000 on art.
1: Busy, busy.
0: When apparently the average family of four during this time would have lived on £31 a year.
1: The only reason I think that Phyllis probably got screwed is really just because of how she, you know, has her final years, um, not with anything Yeah. So, if she was getting properly paid for this work, I think that that wouldn't have been a thing, and she would have lived a long and fruitful life, but...
0: That wouldn't have been uh, a thing, though. Any money that Phyllis would have made would have gone to her master, who might have given her a cut. Like, you know, if she made 100 pounds, he might have given her one pound. You know, of course, people could work to buy themselves. That was definitely a thing.
1: But that's the thing, though, is that when they are recrossing the Atlantic, the... The book's published, right? And it shows her signature style. It shows the love of iambic pentameter and couplets. And it's noted that around one-third is, you know, elegies that I wrote, uh, I talked about earlier. It's elegies for friends, noted persons, or complete strangers uh, of their loved ones who commissioned Phyllis's writing. And while uh, this is published, the Wheatleys emancipate Phyllis. So she is free when this book is in circulation You're and saying. three months later Mrs. Wheatley dies in 1774 that sucks then four years later I mean I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit but this is all in connection with London and the inevitable um, yeah end unfortunately for Phyllis um, four years later in 1778 Mary the daughter of the Wheatleys and Mr. Wheatley die and Nathaniel had moved away by that point, to London, and he dies in uh, 1783. So, that's the end of the Wheatleys. Not to be crass, but there are some who try to paint them as, you know, your grade-A white savior for giving her a place to stay. She was still enslaved when they were showing her off, uh, you know, in that place in London. And, as I said, you know, earlier, I don't think that she was properly compensated, so I don't think that these were good people. That they also had owned other a slaves, and they yeah, and they were owning. They owned people as yeah, they treated them as property. And so we always yeah, are like, awful.
0: everyone owned people. No, not everyone no. owned
1: people. <laughs> right, there are plenty exactly. of indigenous people, of Boston did not Brahmins own people. who
0: did not own people.
1: Right, like so, we could talk
0: about them, but they're not in the story.
1: Really, the only good thing that came out of living with them, is that she was able to be in their house, have that shelter. And when they all die, it's not so good for her because she's currently in that, you know, we just became a new country, America,
0: 1778,
1: like most of the family's dead. Um, So Phyllis needs a friend. And my patron, who's
0: a member of the aristocracy, is now on the outs. Like, as a loyalist, she would be on the outs, so having her, like, continue to align with that person or seek her out to try and make another book with her, that would be frowned upon by the people she lives with every day.
1: Yeah, it's it's a real shame that, that she never got to publish a second volume.
0: Because it's not like she stopped writing amidst this tragedy. Right. Which brings us to, you know, Mary, Susanna, John have passed away, and that's what women do at this time, is they have to latch themselves to another man, so... In 1778 or 1779, Phyllis met John Peters, who was a free black grocer, also from Boston. They had at least three children together. But, of course, at this time, Boston and every major city was gross. It's the 18th century, and the family is living in horrible conditions. They lose two of their children in quick succession. John is sent to debtor's prison the year after Nathaniel dies in 1784, And we've already talked about debtor's prison. We know we saw in the Mary Wollstonecraft and the Mary Shelley episodes, like Mary Wollstonecraft's father narrowly avoids debtor's prison. Mary Shelley's father, William Godwin, narrowly avoids debtor's prison. But black people don't have the same support network that white people at this time had to avoid actually getting sent to the prison. So this means that for the first time in Phyllis's life, she has to work for a living and do physical labor And she becomes a scullery maid at a boarding house that she's living at. Scullery maids are the lowest rank of domestic servants. They worked alongside the cook and were isolated from other household workers because they ate in the kitchen to watch the food and make sure it didn't burn and not at the communal dining table with everyone else. They had the most physically demanding jobs in the kitchen because they scoured everything. The floors, the pots, the sinks, the stoves. And they cleaned fish. Phyllis did not endure this fate for very long as she died in December of seventeen eighty four of complications from childbirth. This is very a Mary Wollstonecraft story. this they very, I think that they would have been friends. I think that if they had both ended up in France during the revolution at the right time, they would have been good girlfriends. And she dies at the age of thirty one, leaving behind an infant son, and that child died shortly thereafter. So in spite of, you know, all that wealth and notoriety and fame, she still had a story that ended very similarly to a lot of black people who came to this country enslaved.
1: What we're, what we're discovering now, um, these recent discoveries of her work show that she's made like 145 poems maybe in her life, in her very short life of, of 31 years. And um, unfortunately, most were never published. That second volume never came out, wasn't ever funded and most are lost to time. And this is a quote from Sandra A. O'Neill on the website PoetryFoundation.org. Quote, As an exhibition of African intelligence exploitable by members of the Enlightenment movement, by evangelical Christians, and by other abolitionists, she was perhaps recognized even more in England and Europe than in America. Unquote. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I guess it makes sense because, like, the bookseller bell book archibald bell's uh bookshop was in england so maybe that's why they were more popular and as we saw earlier in her uh journey as a writer colonists were not trying to read anything from um someone from africa it's noted that the last decade um in this last decade more scholars have been uncovering more and more of her poems and letters notably she's got a statue On Commonwealth Avenue dedicated to her in Boston in 2003 UMass Boston also has a building named after her Wheatley Hall and she's also commemorated on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail she's noted as the first African-American poet and first ever to make a living off of her writing a recent interpretation of her life was done by British Nigerian writer Ade Solanke called Phyllis in London This play was shown at Greenwich Book Festival in 2018. And I've got one final quote from Sandra A. O'Neill here. Before the end of this century, the full aesthetic, political, and religious implications of her art, and even more salient facts about her life and works, will surely be known and celebrated by all who study the 18th century, and by all who revere this woman, a most important poet in the American literary canon.
0: Yay. I like that quote. That's fun. Because it's true. As we who have studied the 18th century, you know, over this last season, we've learned that. We've learned about her and her story and how it fits in.
1: Hopefully we, we get to see some more of her poems in our lifetime.
0: Totally. And of course I wanted to make the criticism side also pretty clear because, you know, there's two sides of literary history. We're all making different arguments. But I think that it is important that she stays a part of our American literary canon so we can keep having those discussions on how black people don't get to necessarily write from their deeply passionate experiences for white society because it would offend them too much. So they live in a pigeonhole kind of world when you see these Georgian black poets, in my opinion. But I just wanted to make sure that all sides were shown and I think that we did a great job of that. So back pat. Pat. well thank you guys for listening to another episode of Fatal Fortunes this was a lot longer than we thought it was going to be we didn't have that much written down but I guess I think we had plenty to say we had a lot so. to talk about yeah yeah that was awesome uh stay tuned for in a couple weeks time we will be doing Jocelyn Hay the 22nd Earl of Errol I'm so excited I literally listened to this documentary on white people in Kenya to fall asleep almost every night like <laughs> wow. y- you know me are you
1: retaining things in your sleep
0: I've watched it not asleep too. Like sometimes okay, cool. I'll it's like 50 minutes. So I'll sit there and I'll knit. And when it's over, like I'll do, I'll watch it while knitting and then I'll be like, okay, I've spent too much time or that's enough time knitting for the day. Like mm-hmm. it's a good way to like time stuff in my mind. Yeah. Cause it's nice. like, Oh, it's a little less than a full hour. Stop knitting or it's like over. switch to a different subject or stop doing a puzzle. Mm-hmm. Stuff like that. So I'm really excited nice. to bring that to you guys. I just want to say though, It could be a really long episode. It could be a short episode because, you know, the sources aren't there. The sources are this documentary, the book that's the companion to the documentary, and a different documentary that basically says the same thing. I've tried to find Mm -hmm. a lot about these white people running around Africa, but it seems like there's not too much authority. And there's only two podcasts on the internet about this guy and his unsolved murder hope you guys look forward to that that's going to be you know an episode i really put my full ass into please make sure to check out our website FatalFortunes.com, where we put our show notes there will be a bunch of stuff related to phyllis that you didn't hear or see here if you're watching us on youtube which you should also subscribe to our youtube channel because right now we have 18 subscribers and i'm very proud of ourselves we also have 2100 plays for the podcast through listening devices and about two thousand other plays on YouTube. So four thousand people, reaching four thousand people in less than a year is pretty awesome to me. Remember guys, keep sharing the podcast. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I love when people come up to me in my life and say, Oh my God, I listen to the podcast. I think it's so funny. And um <laughs> sorry to my law school friends who I totally trash talked on the other episode. It's not personal. You're just no. different.
1: No. Everybody has their <laughs> strengths. Waking up at 6 a.m. or 4 a.m. is a film person's strengths.
0: Yeah, waking up in the middle of the day is a film person thing.
1: Oh, that too. Also, that. Yes. Damn.
0: Then remember to follow us on Instagram and check out our merch on
1: society slash Al Spruill.
0: Yes, links are all in the bio. And, um,. We might put some polls up on Spotify with this new feature through Anchor, and I think it sounds pretty fun. We're also going to start that little subscription service. By the time you're listening to this, the little subscription service should be up. And the episodes that are going to be on it that we know about right now, and we've already done, are Lauren Brissett, Aristotle Onassis, David Kennedy, and Otis Redding.
1: Otis Redding's a great one. Hope, Hope you enjoy that one.
0: That's a goodie. That's definitely a goodie. And... You know, it's only going to be 299 a month to get all of our bonus content. So
1: There you woo. go. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>